Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome to the Mindful Muslim podcast where we discuss Islam, psychology, mental health and spirituality. I am Minha and alhamdulillah today we have a very special guest all the way from America joining us to discuss the Islamic history of psychology and the effect of it in today's society. Sister Rania Awad is a practicing psychiatrist at the Stanford University School of Medicine where she is an instructor within the departments of psychiatry and behavior sciences. She is also a researcher and the director of the Stanford Muslims and Mental Health Lab where she mentors and oversees multiple lines of research focused on Muslim mental health and much of her own work has received awards and grants. MashaAllah. If you haven't already, please do check out Sister Rani Awad's work on YouTube where you will find many, many beneficial talks about mental health in Islam. So, Assalamu Alaikum Sister Rani. Jazakumullah Khairan for taking the time out of your busy schedule to participate in today's podcast. How are you today? Alhamdulillah, wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Excellent. So I think one of the biggest questions that I feel needs to be answered is what did Muslims contribute to what we know as psychology today? Sure. I think that's a great question. I want to actually just start by saying that I'm um, very honored to be part of this podcast and I think it's a wonderful topic and wonderful question that's really important for Muslims to really reflect on and think about. Um, and I want to say that in our discussion, one thing we're going to find out is that we really ought to own um, this tradition of actually caring for um, and seeking care for mental illness um, and any sort of behavioral disturbances. This is very much part of our tradition. So let me tell you a little bit about that. You asked about how Muslims contributed and we have so many different Muslim scholars from starting from our Islamic golden age um, that really wrote and tested out and built upon um, what we today we would call the field of psychology, psychiatry. For example, if we start with, you know, names that folks are probably very familiar with, like Ibn Sina and his Canon of Medicine, or Imam Razi and his book Al-Hawi, both wrote kind of extensively on different types of mental illness and how to treat them. Also, an author that I've written about kind of extensively now is Al-Balkhi, Abu Zayd Al-Balkhi, and a really wonderful book called Sustenance of the Body and Soul, where he, if you see either the title of the book here, Bringing Together the Body and the Nefs, which in, in, when you really look through what he meant, by that, it's really what we today would call psychology. And so the most famous thing Muslims are um, have contributed to this field is what I would call the moral treatment of the mentally ill. So, for example, as opposed to how uh, patients who are ill would be kind of isolated or outcasted or even in medieval Europe, treated, um, burned at the stake and treated like witches. 
in Islam at the same exact time frame, which is our golden era, we have, we first pioneered, you know, this idea of the moral treatment. And it comes directly from the Quran, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says specifically, you know, feed and clothe them um, and speak to them kindly, right? So there's this really focus on a very moral kind of work. Um, and so you see this coming out in the development of the very first psychiatric wards in the world during this era. So, for example, if we look at the 8th century Baghdad, you see, in Iraq, you see that there is um, the Islamic hospital system, and added to that is the very first psychiatric ward. And then you find that kind of a feature in most Islamic hospitals from that time onwards. You find that in these hospitals, and later they become standalone psychiatric institutions, and you find that they are such a strong emphasis on what we would call the psychiatric milieu, meaning kind of the, the environment all around, making sure that details are paid attention to. Like what? Like making sure that these patients are, um, they have, they're bathed and there's clean clothes and there's activities for them. You know, this kind of idea that there's the extra beyond just treating them. You treat them as an entire person and really holistically treat them. So here you have um, the development also of very novel treatments that you don't find before the golden era for patients who are mentally ill, um, like music therapy and massage therapy, right? Also, this idea of talk therapy starts to emerge in this era. And we could say that, and we can even, Imam Abelkhi that I referred to earlier, we can even say that he was the pioneer of talk therapy because truly you don't find a very systemized um, treatment plan in talk therapy before Abelkhi. And it's not really counted amongst treatments until uh, Western psychology picks this up way much later, um, you know, over a millennium later. So this really is part of our tradition and part of our history. I should also say, um, in terms of contributions, we could say, why did our scholars and our noble predecessors come up with this, these different treatments? I would say the impetus was really straight from um, our prophetic tradition, where you have uh, various ahadith of the Prophet وسلم, in which he talks about um, seeking care, right? That this is, uh, if, if for example, in Bukhari, we find that Abu Hurairah narrates that the Prophet said, there's no disease that Allah has created except that he's also created its remedy, right? So the scholars of the time, whatever came across them, they wanted to seek out treatments for it because there's definitely going to be a treatment at some point in some at some uh, point of history, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would give mankind the knowledge to be able to treat it. And also, uh, this really is part of the prophetic sunnah, because you see another hadith in which um, a sahabi asked the messenger of Allah, should we seek medical treatment for our illnesses? And he replies, yes, you should seek medical treatment, because Allah the exalted has let no disease exist without providing for it its cure except for one ailment, and that was old age. <laughs> so here, so now you take this kind of um, inspiration and you put it with the 
the advancements of the golden era. And what do you end up with? You end up with uh, people who are not willing to stick their head in the sand, people who are willing, who want to get out there and figure out how do we treat the, these various illnesses we're seeing in front of us? What is the appropriate way? And you see that even the Islamic government picks up the treatment of the mentally ill and allocates from its pool of wealth, the zakat wealth that's collected from every able Muslim, and puts a portion of that wealth aside to build these psychiatric institutions and to build these um, uh, institutions of treatment in which you have what we call a very um, multidisciplinary approach to treatment. So you have daily visits by the physician, you have nursing staff. You also have what today we would call the social worker, a person who helps coordinate the affair of the um, patient both in the hospital and after they leave. You have um, the pharmacist, right, who's kind of compounding various medications and remedies for that patient. You have also the, which is really beautiful tying in spirituality here, the imam or sheikh figure who comes and recites Quran or speaks to and gives moral, morally uplifting advice to the patient as well. So really a very multidisciplinary, holistic way of treating the mentally ill. This is our Islamic tradition. This is our contribution to um, the fields of psychology and psychiatry, things that existed well before today. <laughs> um, you know, hospitals like where I work at Stanford Hospital kind of applaud themselves for this very multidisciplinary, holistic, integrative approach. Yet we find this in our books, but we are not as Muslims well aware of our own history and tradition. MashaAllah, I think that answer really puts it all in a nutshell for us. Um, I've actually read the book by Al-Balafi on the sustenance of the soul and body. And MashaAllah, it was like one of the first Islamic sort of psychology related books that I'd ever read. I read the version with like um, the commentary by Malik Padri. And, you know, it's, it's so lovely the way that he himself after like, on his footnotes like he'll point out like I can't remember from the top of my head but he'll make comments and he'll say you know this is a night this is from a ninth century physician but it was only discovered say in the 1980s in western psychology and you know it, it, that brings me on to my next question is why do you think that this isn't very well known today especially amongst the muslims yeah subhanallah I think that's an excellent question and and one that I've really um, you know, to be honest, I myself didn't know a lot of this either. I mean, I was like most Muslims grew up hearing, you know, from teachers and parents and uh, community members, you know, our Islamic golden era, it would always be mentioned over and over the advancements of science, advancements of medicine, advancements of uh, the humanities, but it would not, um, there was never really any mention of anything related to mental illness, to the point that when I was deciding which branch of medicine to pursue in my training, I was unsure and kind of un, um, uh, not too enthusiastic, really, about the field of psychiatry, feeling that this was very much a Western construct. And, and most people around me felt the same way. But I felt that if our scholars had had advancements in so many different fields, they couldn't possibly have just ignored 
the brain, <laughs> you know, ignored the seat of emotion, the heart, right? Um, for sure that they, if they had advancements and everything else, how could this be ignored was my thinking. And part of the work actually that we do at the Stanford Muslims and Mental Health Lab is really digging up all of the historical work relating to, um, in medical manuscripts, relating to the mind, the soul, um, emotion, etc. And uh, I believe that part of the reason we really don't know a lot about this is because although it is there, it is buried in the dust of time. You know, in pulling out, you know, we've, we've reviewed over a hundred different manuscripts, um, but they were all still untranslated. They were all either in the original Arabic or Persian languages, and many of them are not even in print form. They are in, they remain in museums uh, in various places, the Cinemania, for example, all throughout the Muslim world. And those are just the ones we are aware of. There may be others we are not even aware of at this point that may hold other gems. So it's, I would say a lot of that is actually on us as Muslims. As time went on, other books and works of Islamic, um, uh, of all kinds of things relating to Islam, whether it's deen-related works and the books of fiqh, aqidah, sirah, tafsir, have been translated in many languages over time. And even some of the medical works have been translated, scientific works have been translated. But this particular um, uh, field of work has really been either untranslated, untapped into, or really um, not analyzed well enough. Like you find works, mention of it in, you find um, actually a significant body of work within Ibn Sina's Qanun, the Canon of Medicine, but nothing that really focuses in specifically on mental illness um, and to make that accessible to us. So I would say really there's no one to blame but ourselves in this case. Um, and to, to share with you what I mean by that, we, when we, when we, a couple of the articles that we've written about Al-Balfi, um, there are two publications right now on his discovery and work on OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and another one on phobias that are found in mainstream medical journals that have now been published, alhamdulillah. And just to tell you the kind of surprise <laughs> from the medical community, that such work even existed when we sent this, um, when we wrote up these articles and sent them for peer review, the review, it took a very long time, first of all, to get the reviews back and we inquired <laughs> why. And it said, they said, because the work was so unorthodox, it was so, um, caught them, the reviewers by editors by surprise that they had to bring in, um, experts of medical history to really review this manuscript. And when they did, and I can actually quote to you some of the words, some of the uh, feedback they gave back, you know, we have a reviewer, for example, who said about Al-Balfi's work, that this overturns, literally overturns the view of some of the most distinguished historians of psychiatry by showing that phobias had, in fact, been the focus of medical attention long before the 19th century, when it is said that phobias were discovered, at least in the Islamic world. And our work, you know, um, shows that this was not just, uh, phobias were understood and interpreted not just in supernatural ways, but also in kind of medical psychiatric ways as well. Um and so that's that's a very big deal, you know, that the medical community now 
anybody writing on the history of psychiatry must quote the Muslim authors and give them credit for their work. Back in the 9th century, like in Belfi, not all the way in the 19th century. So, so unless this work is, we do our job in kind of learning our own history, it's going to be remain buried in the test of time, and credit will be given to other people, um, and never really to our own tradition. You see? Yeah, I mean, um, just to pick up on your your last point that you said about how um, so many works had been translated, like books of tafsir and, and fiqh and other things that you listed, um, and then it kind of makes you think, well, why why was it left behind exactly? Why why wasn't it recognised as something that you know there was a need for it to be translated and into many languages and understood and studied alongside medicine and physical ailments. And I think that's something that's still running through today's society because it's not being recognized. And with that in mind, I mean, how important do you think it is to remind Muslims about, you know, the history within psychology that Islam once had in regards to the current status of mental health right now? Yes. I'll actually quote um, Abu Zayd al-Balfi directly from his book, Musalah um, al-Abdan al-Anfus, right, the sustenance of the body and soul, because right in his introduction, this is 9th century, he says that I am going to break away from the typical mode of physicians writing just about physical symptoms and ailments, and I am going to be including purposefully um, uh, emotion and um, basically mental well-being in my discussion, and I am going to title my book "The Substance of the Body and the Soul," because I feel that physicians of my era, and he's talking about the ninth century, um, have not uh, have been ignoring this topic, and it is of utmost importance to tie the two together. <laughs> and he's urging other scholars of his generation to make sure that this takes place. So it's it's just it's just amazing to see that this is a recurring theme throughout time. That um, as humans we tend to shy away from things that are first of all unseen. You can see a broken leg, you know, but you can't necessarily see something that's broken on the inside, right, emotionally. And because, you know, as they say, right, out of sight, out of mind, um, it is easier to ignore this or to just uh, push it aside or even deny its existence. Um, and so I will use, you know, Imam Abelfi's uh, encouragement that we don't do that, because then if you are not um, well emotionally and, and, and psychologically, then it all spills out and you're not well physically either. They're both tied in together. And I want to say also that this new age, uh, you know, they really consider this term mind-body medicine is very new agey and how cool we're tying the two things together, see how advanced we are, and remind us that this comes from our own tradition, right? We have always had this tradition, but we tend to ignore it. Um, we tend to forget about it. And it really does, um, it really only is a disservice to us at our community. 
Um, I really feel it's very important that we kind of bring the two together and really examine our own tradition because there's so much to be found within the prophetic tradition, within the Islamic tradition, and to figure out what works from Western psychological tradition as well. Um, take what works, leave what doesn't. Uh, but until that really strong examination happens, um, we will continue to just sort of be ignoring um, and, you know, anything that's ignored for a long time will just fester and eventually erupt. Yeah, I, I agree. And I feel that a common theme, right, I suppose, like you said, it's a, it's a reoccurring theme. It's just we make too much of a distinction between the mind and the body. Whereas um, when I was reading Al-Balafi's book, um, I remember reading the parts about OCD and how he actually combined his thoughts. And I think he said something about an imbalance of like yellow and black bile and, and things like that. And he made it he made a physiological point and then he made uh, an emotional point and he, you know, he talked about how to get over these thoughts and he even implemented, you know, waswasa, like thoughts of the, um, sorry, whispers of the shaitan. And it, it makes you, it makes you realize that actually he was the one that was going for this holistic approach. So why is it that we've discontinued that? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, again, I think it's, it's part, um, it's part, I'll tell you something about empathy. The, when we came to figure out one of the things as, you know, in our research to figure out who were the people who influenced empathy and then who did he in turn influence over time? You know, in Islam, we have a very strong tradition of the student teacher relationship and the Senad tradition, the passing down from one person to another with an unbroken chain of transmission. Well, the same exists even in, in all domains of, um, of knowledge. And uh, often you'll find that a scholar will say, and I learned such and such from my teachers, and we'll list who those are. So we were trying to figure out and scanning the literature to figure out who did Al-Balkhi, um, who was influenced by Al-Balkhi. And we found it to be actually quite difficult to, to determine that. And interestingly enough, you mentioned the OCD, Various thoughts and ideas that he had compiled don't really show up in other um, other uh, other medical literature over time. To say that somehow his thoughts were more novel than perhaps his um, contemporaries, and were not actually transmitted over time, uh, and so somehow you know were lost. Like since you also mentioned OCD, let's just focus on that as an example first and say. You know, when we looked at all the criteria that Balfi put for what would be considered obsessive compulsive disorder today, right, we compare that to the Diagnostic Manual of Psychiatry, the DSM, the latest version, number five, and subhanAllah, each and every one of his symptoms matches exactly the criteria for the DSM-5, which was published in 2013. Point by point. Now he's writing this in ninth century, and this is 2013, <laughs> and which a psychiatrist today cannot diagnose properly without making sure that every symptom is uh, is met for the DSM. Um, and he has every one point by point subhanAllah. So, so what happened to that novel kind of thinking? Um, some of it was just lost, also. Uh, for example, was a was best known as a geographer, not as a physician, even though 
And the scholars of the time, as you know, were encyclopedic scholars. They were polymaths. They studied many different and excelled in many different branches of knowledge. In addition to being people who had memorized the Quran and studied the Islamic sciences first. So, um, you know, unfortunately, it seems that his thoughts were kind of precocious. They were ahead of his time and maybe not taken on and lost uh, a bit. However, uh, you do see, uh, like I mentioned about the Islamic hospitals and psychiatric courts, you do see this tradition being taken up. And in fact, you do see that our books, medical books, reached Europe and were really the foundational books for, for centuries in their medical schools, like Ibn Sina's Qanun, for example. Um, uh, so, so it's unfortunate that then later, as we became colonized, right, history kind of flips itself, and there's a, the colonization period and the post-colonial era, you find that there is an adaption then of what we would call Western ideas, thinking that they are purely Western, when there is definitely some research to support that the Enlightenment in Europe had a lot to do with our uh, the golden era of Islam helping the Enlightenment of Europe come to be. So, um, however, in the post-colonial era, which then leads till today, you find that there is a thinking that this is purely Western and not actually or has its origins in the Islamic Enlightenment. Um, so we, you know, mashallah, I think it's just a matter of, you know, calibrating that again in our communities and in our um, literature and in our understanding. I feel like this is something that we could just keep going on and on about because, you know, subhanAllah, there's so much to cover and so much that we could potentially talk about. But unfortunately, we're on a time limit. But So that was sort of Muslims in psychological history, let's say. But I know that you do a lot of talks around faith and mental health. So why do you feel it is important to put them together? Or, you know, what have you found that integrates them both so well? Because, you know, there are aspects within psychology that cover religiosity and, you know, humanistic approaches kind of cover on this sort of thing. But what is it for you that you find them both, that you must intertwine them? Yeah, subhanAllah, I, um, just on a, on a personal note, I studied the Islamic tradition before I studied medicine. And for me, um, I really only took on the study of medicine and psychiatry in specific um, in order to really give me a full and uh, a more holistic understanding of the, how the body and mind function. However, I do not feel that you can study the body and mind devoid of studying the, and understanding the creator who created <laughs> this body and mind. And you cannot treat the body and mind without also um, bringing in the healing property that the, our creator has put in place for us. When you try to separate um, and, and, and just, uh, just separate the two things from each other, you end up with a schism. You end up with uh, a person who has maybe a healthy body, but an unhealthy and unsound soul and mind. Um, and I really think that you have to be integrated because this is the way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has ordained for us. So for me, I really feel that I cannot be somebody who is a healer of the mind um, without really being able to touch on the soul as well. So in, in modern 
psychology. You're right, there aren't. There's definitely now uh, becoming a kind of a, a, a bit of a push in that direction that we should really examine this and find in other religious traditions um, and bringing in faith. You know, there's a whole field right now um, of, you know, Christian psychology, for example, where they're doing a very similar things. So I think, you know, as Muslims, we really need to examine this and bring in Again, our very rich tradition and history um, that our noble predecessors have already laid the foundations for and that we need to kind of take it up to the next many levels to bring it up to speed and up to date. Um, but the two things have to be married to each other and cannot be divorced from each other because when that happens, um, again, you find people who are, are treated in an unholistic manner and so therefore... The treatment is not complete in my view. Yeah, mashallah. Um, so history, you know, like you just said, so you know, moving on this point is the history that we discussed before, you know, that was more of a, let's say, theory basis of psychology. But what about the actual application within, you know, Islamic psychology, i.e. the spiritual side? What do you feel that it covers exactly? Yeah, the, so this, so back to the discussion on Islamic psychology. Um, you know, I am working with a team of people, wonderful people, Michelle, who um, in the states who are attempting to identify what are the uh, the practical applications of Islamic psychology. And I'll refer you to um, an organization that I'm part of, and I direct its branch here in the Bay Area, California, um, called the Khalil Center. Khalilcenter.com, and that's exactly what's what the mission of the Khalil Center is. It's a, in short, a Muslim counseling center with Muslim therapists who are trained and licensed in um, American standards of psychology, or psychiatry, social work, etc. Um, yet are also being trained in the Islamic tradition um, and are trying to bring together what this understanding what would. What would Islamic psychology actually look like and what kind of techniques would actually be used based on uh, sound research methods? So, um, alhamdulillah, please do uh, take, take some time to look at some of the works and the blog that's there on the site. Um, but exactly that, we're really trying to bring together an understanding of what is the concept of the nafs, right? What is the concept of, so how do you treat that? When you look at works of Ihsan, when you look at, for example, the works of Imam al-Ghazali, when he talks about, um, you know, the purification of the heart, the purification of the soul, in the light of more of a spiritual discussion, how do you then integrate that in our discussion of the emotion and in, of the well, emotional well-being, right? How do the two? Because absolutely, there is. I would say not just um, a tiny overlap, like a Venn diagram. You have a, a major overlap, right? It's like we're using um, different terminology at discussing the exact same thing. Subhanallah. So that I really do think that the two have to be fully integrated, and there's a lot more work that we have. I feel like we're just at the beginnings of this. Uh, formulating what this field of Islamic psychology will look like. Um, but we have a very rich tradition to go off of. So I'm very hopeful, inshallah. Inshallah, it's, uh, it sounds amazing. And I look, I look forward to, you know, the Dutch production of it and, you know, going on the blogs and stuff. Um, 
inshallah just for the viewers um i'll i will leave a link um on the website once this podcast is uploaded inshallah um so in terms of the application why do you feel it's important to have islamic counselors and practitioners to sort of help with the application of this mm-hmm. yeah a, a great question you know and I'll, I'll first say i'll first preface my statement by saying that um in modern psychology, there is definitely an emphasis on what we call cultural sensitivity and um, making sure that you are attuned to the patients that you're, clients that you are working with, regardless of their background, regardless of where they come from, you um, as a practitioner should be inquisitive and figure out. So there, I say that because there are many people out there who are not Muslim, but who care deeply about their patients who are Muslim and, and really try to to reach out and understand what's happening and the cultural and the religious ramifications of what's happening. I do have to say that um, for those who have that kind of cultural sensitivity, training and awareness, they're great uh, resources and should be sought out, especially when there's not Muslim practitioners around. Um, in addition, however, as we all know, when you are fully integrated and part of something, then you have practical experience to speak from and an understanding. Now, there's always pros and cons for both sides. Um, however, somebody who is a Muslim therapist and is a, an observant Muslim, let's say, has an understanding when somebody comes and complains or, or, or their, um, their presenting complaint in therapy has to do with, um, you know, a spiritual kind of issue that they're kind of grappling with, right? Uh, Maybe it's a crisis of faith kind of discussion. Somebody who's not of the faith may not quite can understand and sympathize, empathize with this, but may not fully understand what this means or how to fully address it. SubhanAllah. So I really do think that we have to have Muslim therapists, everything from the crisis of faith kind of issues to, to marital therapy, premarital coaching, right? Depression, anxiety, postpartum depression, everything that touches us and can eventually can at some point touch us in our life um, because as Muslims Islam is a way of life it's it's a fully integrated way of life and so therefore the therapists and counselors that we're seeking out should also be able to fully integrate that in the discussion and that's why I believe it's so important to have Muslim counselors and therapists and it's not sufficient in my eyes that they just be Muslim themselves but rather people who have truly dedicated time in studying the Islamic tradition and actually applying it, in addition to having full credentials and licenses and so on in their respective fields of psychology and psychology. Yeah, mashallah. I think I, you know that last point especially is so needed because I've personally had people who have chosen a, a counsellor just because they've been a Muslim and then, then turned to me and said, but you know, it's not what I was expecting. It's just like the other counselors I've had. But you know, they'll throw in the odd inshallah and mashallah and things like that. And Subhanallah, what you're saying is true: is that there needs to be that that sort of underlying, you know, enlightenment of the Islamic tradition to implement that into your practice. Because I think it will just come as second nature. So, as a Muslim psychiatrist yourself. Um, what do you think is the biggest difference between 
uh, a non-Muslim and a Muslim client in regards to mental health and how they view it and, and things like that? What do you feel is the biggest difference between them both? I think that's a very um, broad question and not, you know, every, every, every client is different in what they come from. I've, you know, certainly counseled Muslims, have a significant portion of non-Muslim clients through my training and through my practice that I counsel. Um, and they are as diverse as each one of us, right? <laughs> Inshallah. And so the, you know, um, those who come from a strong religious tradition, uh, you know, whether it's a Christian faith or Jewish faith or other faith, um, you still find the discussion of God and integrating how to really grapple with spirituality in counseling. That also comes up. But for somebody who maybe does not have that worldview, perhaps doesn't believe in God or isn't sure if they believe in God, there is um, definitely the count, the discussion or nature of the counseling does take a different effect, uh, has a different uh, effect. Um, and often it's, it's interesting myself as a person of faith, I've, I've grappled with sitting with somebody who is kind of looking at talking about the future in a very dismal or bleak way. And for us as Muslims, we have this sense of, you know, um, you know, to look on Allah, right? We kind of rely on Allah. We know that things will be better in right? In with the hardship comes ease. Like this is something Allah has guaranteed for us. Um, and so we kind of, we lean on faith to kind of carry us forward. Um, and those kind of techniques are very useful, as you can imagine, in counseling. But if somebody does not believe that or does not have, um, 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 I've personally found it a little bit uh, stifling <laughs> of how to view that same message um, when that's not quite the world view they're coming from. You can, of course, but it's very different of somebody of faith who kind of it clicks immediately. Yes, that's true. In the man you know. Um, Whereas, whereas uh, somebody who, who does not come again from that world, it's, it's more difficult. Yeah, I mean, working within mental health myself, and you know, exactly, I agree. Sometimes I, I sort of, I guess that the main distinction for me is that 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 hope of the afterlife. I guess, especially mm -hmm. like people who are sort of. Um, who believe in reincarnation and things like that, or people who just think it just stops. I mean, you know, subhanAllah, and it makes you think like what a blessing Islam and its and its goals, you know, are and do for the human being because I guess that's what kind of keeps us going. Mm -hmm. So in your years of studying and working, mashallah, what do you feel is the most profound thing you feel you have learned or the most interesting thing you have discovered in your research? Mm, mashallah. Yeah, the about nine, ten lines of research that run through it, several different projects running through it, and a really wonderful crew of researchers who are really actually um, spread throughout the world, mashallah. And uh, every every line of research has really brought amazing, really truly amazing discoveries. And I don't mean just for ourselves as lab members or even my colleagues at Stanford, but I also mean kind of whenever I speak of these things, people are just so fascinated <laughs> by the discoveries. Like, uh, for example, Imam al-Balkhi figuring out, you know, um, a, a whole entire category of illness in obsessive compulsive disorder, which is not even, you know, touched upon or considered to be a full, um, 
diagnostic category until the 19th century. Same with phobias, exactly the same with phobias, right? Um, so you have this, this, these essentially what we would call pre-modern times except that the, the thinking of them is incredibly modern. <laughs> um, and, uh, and my own uh, mentors, for example, that I've, where I would say, I think I've come across something really interesting, but you tell me, you know, as an expert of OCD, whether this is kind of a neat thing or not. And they have just been dumbfounded, <laughs> as have our reviewers in, in the various um, journals we've submitted our work to. So I've, I have really been... If I can put it all in a nutshell, I would say I have been most amazed by how rich our tradition is um, and how many advancements truly happen in our Islamic golden era. Um, and uh, I, I would hope, and it's my really intense desire and hope, inshallah, that we really, as modern uh, Muslims in this current era, to really take a look closely at our history and at the works of our noble predecessors um, and integrate that in our current work and not just sort of build purely on Western uh, or scientific uh, approaches without looking at our history as well. I think that's really helped me and informed me. It's, it's just the same as our study of Islam, right, traditional classical study of Islam, where, you know, you can't really be licensed in any specific domain of Islamic knowledge, right, the Ijazah system, where you receive a license to set, to teach a specific subject, unless you've sat at the feet of the teachers who are masters of that subject, and when they have deemed you uh, good enough and strong enough in that subject, then they give you the Ijazah, give you the license to then become a teacher of that subject yourself. So here we are with people who have credentials or degrees in psychology and psychiatry, um, who have sat at the feet of, technically, right, of, uh, of Western masters of this field and have not have done so yet of our Islamic masters. And, and fortunately, they're still in the dust of time, but really we must be students at their feet as well um, to really have strongest effect, I, I think, in the honor. Mashallah, you make it sound so exciting and adventurous. Um, and I suppose it is. And, you know, I really pray that um, that this podcast and, you know, it, and everything that, you know, you, you do, your research, I really pray that it inspires a lot of people to do their research, to dig a little bit deeper, you know, and to take it up as an interest um and not just just not just in within psychology but you know other things that muslims have brought to the forefront um of you know discoveries and um other uh, other fields um because you know islam it had it did have a great place in the world once and it would be so nice to counteract um, all the negativity around Islam today with these great discoveries and I feel that it should become a part of our identity as Muslims living in the West in these times but I guess we'll round it off here um, I just wanted to say again Jazakallah khair for taking the time to um, talk to us today um, mashallah everything you said has been so amazing truly truly inspiring I pray your work is super super successful um, and you, you know you become a name in history as well one day inshallah subhanallah this would be 
Um, that's incredibly humbling. If anything, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can use us as vehicles to just um, to, to relay the message that is already the divine message he wishes to relay, then this would be above and beyond what we could ask for, inshallah. Inshallah. Jazakallah khair for everyone who was listening. Um, please do share uh, with all your friends and family. Share on all our social media. Um, please do leave any comments of discussion um, on the website um, underneath this recording. Um, don't forget to comment on our social media. We're on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram and Twitter. Um, if you feel like you'd like to add anything or you have any future ideas for future podcasts um, or you would like to be uh, a guest, please do email us on info at inspirationminds.org.uk Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh Cause I need you by my side I wish to be close